Gaiush Nation, welcome to our last show of our first season for this podcast. Sincerely, thank you to all of our listeners. This has been a fun ride. We've learned a lot and have been blown away by the traction we've gained. So just a huge thank you to everyone for listening to the show. And don't forget, go follow us or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. That really helps us. And subscribing will also get you set up for alerts as we post off-season content, which we won't do on a weekly cadence like we have been, but more on an ad hoc as needed when, when big news breaks. Also, follow us on Twitter. We'll be tweeting retweeting uh all that whenever there's um any news relating to the football team um certain news is is not as major and that would justify more of a tweet so we'll be doing that we'll also be tweeting about the basketball team so if you want to keep up with us we'll we'll definitely be active on twitter for our final show it's gonna be pretty simple we're gonna take a deep dive into season grades for each position group and then give a way too early 2022 season preview uh, we're looking at returning production metrics and the schedule next year. And then we're very excited. We've got the uh, return of the Four Horsemen segment with our favorite memories from the 2021 football season. All right, let's dive in. Number one is challenge everything. This is why I'm here. Our leaders challenge normalcy. Challenge everything is a mentality to find a better way. Beginning with season grades, the Irish finished the season 11-2 and two on the year, a fifth straight 10-plus win campaign, and top 10 finish in the polls. For what was supposed to be a rebuilding year, this was a resounding success despite losing our head coach, despite starting new players across the board with one of really the lowest returning production metrics in the country. Of course, the Fiesta Bowl stings, but overall, this was a really, really fun and solid season for the Notre Dame football program. We're going to go through each position group, but let's start with acknowledging what 11-2 and two means, particularly in a rebuild or reload year. ND's standards, particularly in the last five years, and just for the program as a whole, means that college football playoff, making the college football playoff is an A. Winning a championship, obviously, is an A+. So because we didn't hit that this year, the season cannot be an A or an A+. I think, and I think some of the success that we saw was the strength of schedule, maybe not being quite as as rigorous as we expected. Um, and given given the collapse in the Fiesta Bowl, I'm more of a, a borderline uh, A minus or B plus. What do you think, Brett? I think if we had kept our foot on the gas, so to speak, in the Fiesta Bowl, this season would easily start getting into that A range, even if we didn't make the college football playoff. We, we would have ended our major bowl loss streak, which goes back to the 93 season, and we would have gone into the offseason with a ridiculous amount of momentum. However, we lose a close loss to the Oklahoma State Cowboys in the Fiesta Bowl, still wind up with 11 and wins, still wind up with a top 10 season. So I've just at a high level think this is A minus B plus. Um, and, and as we've gone through the research, I'm, I'm leaning more towards A minus on, on the season, just given Again, we, we were one spot out from the college football playoff, and if, if that's the metric to get to an A, we were one step below that. So I've, I've got this as an A-minus season. That sounds about right. I, I, like I mentioned, I'm, I'm borderline A-minus or B-plus. I think I was leaning B-plus, but hearing your input there, Brett, that gets me closer to an, to an A-minus. Really, if the offensive line had gelled a little bit sooner, we probably— I'm not going to say that we definitely would have beaten Cincinnati, but I think we have a good chance of beating Cincinnati. And if that had happened, then we would have made the college football playoff. I mean, honestly, if Auburn had just beat Alabama, we would have been in the college football playoff. So really, really close to to hitting that uh, that metric that we want. Um, now, as for the context for the grades we're about to give, 
We handed out midterm grades during the bye week. Offense, not great at the midseason mark. It was a C, really struggled in the first half of the year. Uh, and the defense was an A-. minus. we got to give some credit here for improvement. We can't forget those first six games, but we're going to put a little bit more weight on the second half of the season. Um, and overall, we need to get to about a B-plus or A- minus average to match the, the top-down view of an 11-2 season finishing in the top 10. Brett, you want to kick off the offense? Sure thing. And we'll proceed by by uh, rotating position groups here. So I'll, I'll start with quarterback on offense. We graded this out as an A-. minus. The quarterback carousel was, of course, messy early in the season. A lot of switching, a lot of inconsistencies. But the big storyline really of this entire year was the tweaks we made to the scheme during the bye week. Shorter throws, more tempo. And what that really unlocked was a new and improved Jack Cohn who, who locked down the starting role. On the season, Jack Cohn's pro football focus grade was 82. For context, Ian Book had a grade of 78. Deshaun Kaiser, 77. Everett Golson, 78. So Jack Cohn, clearly, you know, in that category and actually slightly above the quarterback play of, of those QBs. And Jack Cohn was 27th among FBS quarterbacks with that pro football focus grade. Another metric we talk a lot about is predicted points added per play. Cohn's number was 0.37. That was right around where Kaiser was, a tick below where Ian Book was. Um, that mark in the country was was 35th. So advanced stats, he's not quite top 25, but what really stood out to us was the improvement in the second half of the season. In, in the second half of the season, he was a top 25 quarterback, and he still took a lot of heat from the fans. He, even in the Fiesta Bowl, the Notre Dame Twitterverse was screaming over Cone not being good enough. And we forget he threw for 500 yards and five touchdowns. So this guy absolutely balled out. Um, his seven highest pro football focus grades were the last seven games of the season. So a, a really nice trajectory from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Um, and that's where we've got him going down as, you know, arguably one of the best seasons in the Kelly era for a quarterback. And that, that has him grading out at an A minus under our, um, grading skill. Definitely. I think the takeaway with Cone, really good college QB, near top 25 level. That's about an A minus. For an A plus, that's more of a Heisman level. For an A, I'm thinking that's more of like a top 10. And, and Cone was not quite at that level. Certainly, we got what we wanted out of him. I think coming in relative to expectations uh, for a transfer QB, he did really well. Now, moving on to the skills positions, what we're going to do here is we're going to lump together the running back position, the wide receiver position, and, and the tight ends into one grade here. And right now we've got it at an A minus. Uh, and it's, it's, it's frankly a tale of two cities. Running back Kyron Williams and tight end Mike Mayer were both second team All-Americans. A couple of highlights on both. Mayer, he was eighth in pro football focus grades among power five tight ends. However, he led all power five tight ends in receptions and he was, um, uh, third across all of, of, of FBS. But maybe the most important stat is that he led all power five tight ends in first downs. And I think certainly that is, uh, deserving of an A plus grade. Uh, pundits, uh, people in the media, basically anyone who, who closely followed, um, Notre Dame season or really people who are following like draft grades too would tell you that, uh, Mayor likely is the most talented, uh, tight end in the country. And if, if that's not deserving of an A plus grade, then, then I don't know what is. Now moving on to Kyron, he did have a bit of a slow start to the year as the offensive line gelled. Uh, however, um, his pro football focus grade for the year was 81. Anything above 80, that's NFL caliber. Uh, but that was actually outside the top 20 among most Power 5 starting running backs. We still have Kyron as a solid A, and here are the reasons why. He was fifth in the country in broken tackles on the season. Uh, and, and then he was first in the second half of the year. Really came on strong at the end. 71 broken tackles. 71. 
for context, that's over five per game. Wild. He was just making so many plays out of nothing. Um, for anyone who watched our, our season closely, the stats that we're, we're telling should should match what you were what you were seeing and what uh, what your experience was watching Kyron Williams. Basically, in, in a year where the offensive line was inexperienced and had a hard time getting things going with a new QB, Kyron was Mr. Steady. Like I said, highlight reels along the way. He eclipsed the thousand yard rushing mark with uh, 350 receiving yards on top of that. 17 total touchdowns. Incredible season. There's so many highlights that I could list out here. Just uh, really the level of play uh, from him throughout the season would just open, open my eyes at times. I, I think we've talked about it a little bit before. Um, I think, frankly, in the Kelly era or post-Kelly era, he, he's the best running back that I've seen. I think Josh Adams has a bit of a case too, but at least for me personally, I thought Kyron, I think he takes, he takes the mantle as the, the top Kelly, post-Kelly running back. So that's running back and tight end. Then moving to wide receiver, Kevin Austin – he had a pro football focus grade of 72. For context, anything in the 70s, that's like an above average starter level grade at the college level, but it's, it's not elite. In the 80s is when you're getting to that elite range. Styles, he emerged, uh, especially towards the end of the season. Lindsey, Davis, Wilkins, they all had grades in the 60s. Uh, Lindsey was a grade right at 60, so that's a low end starter grade. Anything in the 60s, that's kind of like an average, uh, college starter. If you're right at 60, that's a little bit more at the low end. Um, However, I, I did think that Austin emerged as a true wide receiver one, particularly at the end of the year. For for the whole season, he went for almost 900 yards on the season. Going back to 2005, we've had 11 receivers eclipse 1,000 yards in a season. So this wasn't Claypool, Boykin, Fuller, TJ Jones, Floyd, Tate, Samarja, McKnight, or uh, Stavall. So, I mean, he, he had a great year, but we've had plenty of other receivers who have put up bigger numbers and have had... Uh, uh, had a bigger impact than um, than Austin did. While he was, none, you know, like I said, he was a uh, a very good uh, starter, nonetheless. Um, and I think the Pro Football Focus grades uh, really say it here. I think Austin, he was a he was a he was a B as the number one guy, and the rest of the receiver room was again more more of a replace replaceable. Um, there were more replaceable level starters, and I think that that pulls down the position group to a whole as a B minus with no one really stepping up consistently throughout the year. Again, Styles, he started to pick it up late in the year, and I think that's that bodes better for next year as opposed to what his impact was uh was was this year. So if I'm rounding up the position groups here, A plus at tight end, A at running back, and B minus at wide receiver. Averaging that out, that gets us to about an A minus. I think it's important to note, however, that while the tight end and running back positions have been uh have been doing quite well and Notre Dame, in order for us to really take that next step to be uh, an elite offense, the wide receiver position group in particular really needs to step it up. That's where I think we can actually start seeing more of an explosive offense, kind of similar to what what Alabama and um, Oklahoma, when Lincoln Riley was there, what they had been doing. And then that brings us to the offensive line, a tale of two seasons, really, where in, in, in the beginning of the year, took a while to gel, but but really emerged in the second half of the season. So first, starting on run blocking, we talk about line yards per rush. That's a metric that measures how much line or sorry, how much push the offensive line is generating on a given running play. We ended the season with that metric at 2.9. That's below average across the country. But what's important to note is we started out around 2.4 in the first six games of the year, which was almost dead last in the country but were 3.2 in the second half of the year, which was top 50. So a, a marked improvement. And in pass protection, you saw a similar story. Jack Cohn was under pressure 12 times per game in the first five games of the season, 
but just six times per game in the last seven games. So pass protection productivity got a lot better cutting those pressures in half. Looking at some grades as a team, Notre Dame's pass blocking grade finished 15th per pro football focus and our run blocking grade finished 21st. That's pretty darn good to be, you know, roughly top 20 in both pass blocking and run blocking. And frankly, I think that would surprise the the average fan where where Notre Dame shook out in those grades. It, It certainly surprised us as we were doing a lot of the research. And when you break that down, Josh Lugg, Jarrett Patterson, Joe Alt, they led the offensive lines with grades of 80 or 81. So three really solid pieces there. Kane Madden just behind them at a, at a grade of 78. And Mike, as you alluded to, anything in that high 70s, getting into that 80 range is where you're an above average starter, really getting on the cusp of, of elite play. Left guard was a struggle. Kristoffich graded out at a 68. And, and before then, Zeke Carell struggled earlier in the year with a grade of 58. So my hypothesis before researching this segment was that the offensive line would have been a B or B minus. And again, Jeff Quinn, he did a lot of great things with this group. He, he recruited well and, and he coached them pretty darn well. And the beat writers didn't see that. The fans were upset about it. Clearly the coaching staff wasn't happy with Jeff Quinn's performances as he got let go. And we are very, very excited about the Harry Heastand hire. We, we think that's a big upgrade relative to Jeff Quinn. Harry Heastand's one of the best offensive line coaches in college football history. But Jeff Quinn does a, deserves a lot of credit with this group. He did a really nice job at Notre Dame. And you saw that in the production on the field this year, um, where the, the grades speak for themselves and, and the improvement from the beginning of the season to the end of the season speaks for itself as well. So given both pass blocking and run blocking was in that circa top 20 category, we had the offensive line grade as an A-. minus. Yeah, I think for me, some, some of the early season grades were maybe a bit too big to justify an A- minus for me. I, I definitely hear you on the grades. But I think personally, I'm, I'm a bit more at a, a B plus or B. So let me hear your thoughts. But uh, should we just split it, call it a B plus? I like that because otherwise we would have had an A minus grade for the quarterback skills position and offensive line. So it's it's nice to mix that up. So overall, we had the offense at an A minus. That's also backed up by our SP plus efficiency ranking, which was 20th in the country. So a, a top 25 offense, I think overall justifies that A minus grade. But it was really quarterback play and skills position, getting it done while offensive line had some struggles, improved throughout the season, but but maybe a step below those other position groups. Agreed. Let's flip to the defense. Starting with the defensive line, it was anchored by Isaiah Foskey with 11 sacks. That goes down as the third most in Notre Dame history for a single season behind Stephon Tuitt and Justin Tuck. Two guys who have gone on to have great NFL success. To it, he's still adding the accolades to his NFL career. Foskey led the entire defense with a pro football focus grade of 81. Uh, as we mentioned several times in the show, anything in the 80s that's elite, that's an NFL caliber grade. So really played at an extremely high level the entire season. Interestingly, however, outside of Foskey, only Jason Adamolola had a pass rush grade above a 70. So everyone else here largely average. As a result, Andy's uh, team pass rush grade was just 50th in the country per pro football focus, uh, which is fairly middle of the pack. Um, but it is worth noting a top 50, we had a top 20 rush defense grade per pro football focus. Kurt Heinisch, he was anchoring the interior. Foskey, Jason Adamolola, they, they graded out really well there. And then I think another important point here is that it's, it's just the depth that we have at the defensive line. We had nine guys on the defensive line play 10 or more snaps per game. Eight of those nine had pro football focus grades of 69 or higher. 
So eight of the nine graded out as above average college level starters or higher. That is exceptional depth. And especially at a position at the defensive line, which tends to benefit a little bit more from a heavy rotation. Um, so I think to me with Foskey leading the way and all the depth around him, this seems like a pretty clear cut uh, case for the defensive line grading out as an A. Completely agree there in A. And also as we look ahead to next year with Foskey and Jason Adamalola now coming back, arguably this might be our strongest position group coming into next year on either side of the ball. Moving on to linebacker, this was maybe the hardest group to grade. You need to start by recognizing injuries played a big role. Maris Luafau, Shane Simon, Paul Moala were all lost for the season. Even Drew White played most of the year with nagging injuries, uh, including a torn ligament in his knee at one point. And, and Drew White hung in there. He had a pro football focus of uh, grade of 70. So that's, you know, solid starter level grade. But considering he graded out at 78 in 2019, he really wasn't able to maintain that level of play either this year or last year. But opposite of Drew White was Jack Kaiser, who was just an absolute revelation. He had the second highest pro football focus grade on the defense with a grade of 79. Very solid across the board, especially in coverage. He didn't allow a single passing touchdown this year when he was the primary defender. When I saw that stat for our Rover, our linebacker that we put in coverage the most, um, I was stunned when, when I saw that he didn't give up a touchdown the entire year in, in pass defense and tackling. Um, he didn't put up gaudy amounts of tackles, but he only had three missed tackles um, on the entire season. That was a missed tackle rate of just 7%. That was the best we had on the front seven. So across the board, one of our best defenders. And then the last linebacker, J.D. Bertrand. We've picked on him before, and we always try to caveat that with he was a young player thrust into a starting role ahead of schedule, and, and not only thrust into a starting role, but had to play entire games where this was maybe a guy that would have been a rotational player with Maris Luafau or Shane Simon if, if they stay healthy. And he, he just never got a breather. He'd, he'd wear down by the end of games. And while we think he has a bright future, his pro football focus grade was 58, basically replacement level grade. Um, easily the, the biggest weak spot on the defense in terms of tackling. He had 19 missed tackles on the season. No one else had more than eight. In past coverage, he gave up a completion percentage of 89%. Um, so he, he really struggled throughout the year. Young player, bright future. Um, but definitely pulled down this linebacking group. Last stat to highlight on the linebackers. Pro football focus graded Notre Dame's defense as a whole as the seventh best tackling team. Some of that credit, of course, goes to the defensive line and the secondary. But a lot of that credit goes to Jack Kaiser and, and Drew White, who were just very, very solid tacklers. And that is so critical for, for the linebacker position. Um, so we've got the linebacker group graded out as a B, taking all that together, putting a little more weight towards um, Kaiser and Drew White and and being a little more forgiving on J.D. Bertrand and, and the injuries that plagued this position group. But overall, had some weak spots and and really didn't feel like we, we could put this in, in the A range, but had it as a solid B. Definitely. That B grade's a bit, it's a bit of a frustrating one for me because I think this position group, especially going into the season, was one that seemed like it had a lot of potential. If we'd stayed healthy, I could easily have seen this position group getting into that A minus, maybe not an A, but easily into that A minus range. Um, I do think moving forward next year, and we'll talk about this more later in the podcast, I think this is a position group where hopefully we see a, a nice jump in, in production. 
Um, now moving on to the secondary, this is also this is also an interesting position group. DJ Brown, he really stepped up. He he did have a poor tackling performance in the Fiesta Bowl. Notably, he had that open field missed tackle that led to an Oklahoma State touchdown. But for the year, he had a pro football focus grade of 79 on the season. That's really good. That's like really teetering on the edge of that elite territory, which I think some some fans might find that a little su- bit surprising. That's third highest on the defense. For much of the much of the year, he was actually our highest graded defender, right up there with Foskey. Three interceptions, tied for a team lead as well. Of course, Kyle Hamilton, when he played, he, he played like an All-American. His first half of the season highlights were unreal. He had some just eye-popping interceptions. Um, but unfortunately, he shut it down for the second half of the year. So it's, it's a bit, you can't, it's hard to evaluate him in this group for the full season grade. We basically have to grade this position group only accounting for, uh, a half season impact of Kyle Hamilton. Um, now moving on to the corners, Cam Hart, pro football focus grade of 73. So above average starter level grade. That wasn't surprising to me. I thought Cam Hart looked very, very good this year. A grade of 73, uh, aligns with that, says that he was a good starter. Um, frankly, I'm, I'm always surprised that that grade wasn't a little bit higher. He allowed just a 49% completion percentage and he drew some really tough matchups. Drake London at USC, that guy's going to be playing in the NFL. I wouldn't be surprised if he is a big time NFL receiver. Josh Downs at UNC, uh, Wicks at UVA. These are, these are good receivers. And I thought Ham, uh, Cam Hart held up pretty well. Um, now while Cam Hart held up pretty well, I would say in these matchups, the other corners did struggle at times. Clarence Lewis and Tariq Bracey both grayed out in low 60s on pro football focus. So that's a low-end college starter. Both allowed completion percentages above 60%. Interestingly, Andy graded out as the 16th best pass coverage team for pro football focus. Um, I think similar to the blocking grades, that would surprise a lot of fans. It surprised me a little bit, honestly. Of course, you had Kyle Hamilton roaming the field for six games, so I think that helps a bit. However, much of this performance... I think is a testament to DJ Brown and Cam Hart anchoring that unit in the second half of the year. As I've just mentioned before, we played some really elite wide receivers, but we also played some uh, elite QBs. We had Desmond Ritter, uh, Slovis, uh, Howell. Um, and then in addition to the receivers I mentioned, um, overall, I think this we, we played some very talented uh, skill position players. So I think when you consider all that, that has me putting the secondary at a B plus. Debated an A minus, but the corner play opposite Cam Hart, it just made it, it made it really hard to elevate that to the, uh, to the A range. Um, so now recapping everything that I just said, the defensive line was an A, linebackers and secondary were both B pluses. That averages out to an A minus overall. There were holes on this defense for sure. Some places where there wasn't elite talent, but as a group, very, very solid, graded out very well. And per SP plus, this was the 13th most efficient defense in the country. I think going into the season, Brett, I think bo- both of us had uh, the defense probably pegged somewhere more around the 20 range. So I think relative to our expectations and with ha- Kyle Hamilton out for much of the year, uh, they, they, they exceeded what, what we were, uh, expecting that they would do. Um, so I think that that, that was a, a nice takeaway for me. And I think frankly that, uh, makes a stronger case for an A minus grade. Um, you know, and I, I don't think it would be crazy to even consider an A grade. Um, now putting it all together, that's two top 20 units on offense and defense. And that led to an uh, overall SP plus grade of seventh in the country in terms of team efficiency. So clearly uh, the team from the advanced metric standpoint was pegged squarely inside that top 10. I think that's a really good grade. And I think that aligns to what we said earlier at the beginning of the segment where we were grading out uh, to, to about an A minus grade for the season. And one of the things that stood out to me as we've gone through these position groups is that this looks and feels a lot like Kelly era teams 
Um, very solid, very consistent. This isn't, you know, the Charlie Weiss where you've got a position group that's just, just terrible. Um, very solid across the board. No real weak spot other than maybe linebacker that was beat up by injuries. And everywhere else was, was solid and, and above average performance and a very well balanced team on both sides of the football. Um, it's very rare to have a top 20 unit on both offense and defense in these advanced metrics. And, and I think that puts the program in a really good place. We've seen this now for five years where there's a very balanced combination of, um, strong offensive and defensive efficiency. And that's what really, um, lands this team as an A minus grade overall. Uh, it's driven by A minus on both sides of the football, which is a very, very good thing for the program. So let's turn to 2022. Number two is unit strength. Unit strength means love. It's making a choice to love your teammates. It's what turns players into a team. Turning to our way too early 2022 season preview, we're going to talk about two topics. The first, returning production for next year's team, and then a quick look at next year's schedule. Beginning with returning production, this is a metric that's used often for projecting success. And it's discussed nonstop by media heads in, in the offseason. Just as one example of, of how to contextualize this, SP Plus spends a lot of time on this metric and, and factoring it into their projected efficiency metrics. And according to SP Plus, the magic number is 60%. If you return more than 60% of your production in receiving yards and passing yards and rushing yards, you can expect to see about a two-point improvement per game. Whereas if you return less than 60% of your production, you can expect to see about a three-point-per-game um, decrease. So being above or below that 60% threshold could have a five-point swing per game. That That's a really big deal. However, nuance matters. For example, Notre Dame ranked 120th out of 127 teams last year in returning production because we lost Ian Book and Javon McKinley and Ben Skoranek and Tommy Tremble, really the only two players we brought back from a productivity perspective on, on offense was Kyron Williams and, and Mike Mayer. But Kyron Williams and Mike Mayer really mattered. Those were two really important pieces. You also had Kevin Austin coming back who didn't play last year because of injuries. So while Kyron and Mayer coming back mattered pretty much more than everyone else, you also had the addition of Jack Cohn coming in as a transfer. So what we really want to emphasize here is returning production matters. The number of starters you have coming back is important. The productivity of those starting starters coming back is important, but there's a lot of nuance, and that's particularly nuanced as you think about a lot of programs taking advantage of the extra year of eligibility from the COVID rules. That's inflating the number of starters that a team can come back, bring back for fifth and sixth year seniors that Notre Dame hasn't really taken advantage of, and, and that's why you see us ranking lower in returning starters and returning production because we don't have a ton of super seniors coming back really just one last year uh, in Jonathan Dorr and only a handful next year. But we're bringing back a lot of talent, a lot of great recruiting, a lot of great development. And therefore, you know, as, as we talk through these returning production metrics, we'll try to provide some of that nuance. Definitely. Some programs have demonstrated an ability to reload. And I think these uh, returning production stats aren't, aren't quite as critical. Um, all right. So moving on to returning starters on offense, Quarterback and running back are gone in, in Cone and Kyron. Tight end, back, and Michael Mayer. Of the three wide receivers, Kevin Austin has declared for the NFL draft. But 
Lindsay and Styles are back. Right now, uh, Davis, he actually just announced about a half hour, uh, prior to recording this podcast that he would, he would be back. Um, and Wilkins hasn't said whether or not he's coming back, but Pete Sampson at the Athletic indicated that he expects him to be back as well. We also have Colsey, who started a couple games. So we're counting this as two starters back at wide receiver. But the guys who will be replacing Austin have played a lot of snaps for this program already. And there are a few guys, particularly Styles, who have flashed at times. And I would not be shocked if they took a big jump. I could see, I would not be surprised at all if Styles took a massive offseason jump and was maybe even better than, uh, than Austin was, uh, this year. However, I think the big issue with the wide receiver position is depth. And it's a major reason uh, why wide receiver coach Dell Alexander was let go. And we only signed one wide receiver in, in, in this uh, in this past recruiting class, which just kind of exacerbates the issues that we have. Um, but I do think the top of this position group, led by Styles, and then guys like Davis coming back, Lindsey, maybe someone like Colsey, again, maybe he can take another big jump. I think there's enough there to give you some reason for optimism. We just This is just a position group where we just can't have injuries. And then on the offensive line, Kane Madden is out the door graduating, but uh, Jarrett Patterson and Josh Lugg both announced they're back for a fifth and sixth year, respectively. Patterson honestly was a bit of a surprise to us. He's likely a mid-round draft pick in the NFL, so a lot of folks thought he would be departing for the NFL rather than taking a grad year. But that leads to four starters being back on the offensive line in Patterson, Lug, Joe Alt, and Christoffich. And that doesn't include Blake Fisher, uh, Carmody, or Zeke Carell. So four starters back with three other role players with solid experience to fill out that line. And a very natural way for this to, to slot in where Josh Lug previously started at guard before moving out to tackle. He will likely move back to right guard where... Uh, Cade Madden played, and then Blake Fisher will slide in at at right tackle. So you pretty much already have your offensive line set for your starters with four starters coming back, but really a, a lot more experience than that. Yeah, we didn't even count Blake Fisher as a starter here. He Had he been healthy, he would have started the whole year. And then, as we mentioned in the last podcast, in the Fiesta Bowl, he just slotted back in, played really well. So you could you could make a case for considering him a starter in, the, in this position. Um I think also with Patterson, I think he stood like that higher. I think that probably played a role with Patterson, uh, maybe being convinced to stay. Uh, but now moving on, I think, I think all this experience coming back, I think all this optimism for a, a very good offensive line, I think it makes it much more likely for Logan Diggs and Chris Tyree to come in and have success replacing Kyron with an experienced line staying largely intact. So that's seven starters back, but for each of the four starters that we need to replace, the key point is that this year's backups played a lot of snaps and games, so we will have familiar faces stepping in at every position. This isn't going to be uh, totally green starters getting playing time for the first time. And then on the defense, starting with the defensive line, Kurt Heinisch and MTA are both gone to graduation, but maybe the biggest returning player news of the last week is that Isaiah Foskey is coming back with a double-digit sack season. Most thought he would be going to the NFL in the second or third round. Maybe not a first round pick, but but for sure in in the early portion of the NFL draft and, and thought he'd likely go early. But Freeman's promotion head coach, I think, certainly helped. Mike Elston certainly helped in this one. And in addition to Foskey being back, starting defensive tackle Jason Adamalola is coming back with his twin brother, Justin, for a fifth year. And the rest of the Rotation on the defensive line is largely intact with Osafo Mensah, Howard Cross, Riley Mills. We mentioned Justin Adam Alola and Jacob Lacey, not even to mention Alec Ehrensberger or Jordan Batella, who saw 
a decent amount of playing time this year. So again, the experts and the analysts will say that's two starters gone in Heinish and MTA. But really the way that we've been thinking about this is seven of the nine rotation players will be back with two more in Botello and Ahrensberger to really fill out that rotation again. Just great news for this defense to have that much production coming back. Then at linebacker, Drew White is gone, but J.D. Bertrand and Jack Kaiser are both back. Plus, Maris Leifau, Leifau should be uh, coming back from an injury, and he was a projected starter this year. In fact, going into the season before his injury, uh, many people around the program thought that he could potentially be an impact player for us. And then we also have Prince Colley. He was a highly touted freshman who played a lot on special teams this year, uh, but I think he's, he's in line to vie for a starting role next year. Um, and it's still not clear as of the time of recording this podcast, but Bo Bauer might be back for a sixth year, and uh, he emerged later this year and and played well. Um, then in the secondary, Kyle Hamilton's gone. He was gone for the second half of this year. He was replaced by a combination of, of uh, Ramon, Raymond Henderson, Houston Griffith, and DJ Brown. Um, Houston Griffith, he actually announced that he's coming back for a super senior sixth year. DJ Brown is back for his fifth year. It's unclear about Tariq Bracey, but we think he'll graduate. However, I, I feel like this is one I don't have uh, too much of a pulse on. If he stays, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised with that either. But I think the big news of the past week has been that Northwestern All-American safety Brandon Joseph is transferring to ND. Technically has three years of eligibility left, two, two excluding the extra COVID year. He was tremendous as a sophomore, consensus All-American and first-team All-Big Ten. He regressed a bit this year as a junior, but he did play on a very bad Northwestern team. And I think that regression is more of a reflection on the team that he was playing with, not necessarily on his kids' ability, on this kid's ability, but arguably the best transfer candidate in the entire portal on defense and Freeman got him. So huge deal. I think that really helps, uh, mitigate, you know, maybe some of the concerns that we have in the secondary. It doesn't totally address some of our concerns at corner, but I think, I think Joseph is one of those guys who can, who can, uh, is good enough to like make up for some of the deficiencies that we have elsewhere in the position group. For sure, with Cam Hart and Clarence Lewis also back at corner. Um, so it's really Hart, Lewis, and then some combination of Griffith and, and DJ Brown and Ramon Henderson back at, at the other starting safety spots. So that's three returning starters with Hamilton gone, but now slotting him in with really a day one ready All-America type talent in Brandon Joseph. Um, it'll, it'll only save three returning starters in the secondary, but we played without Hamilton for half the year. And other than him, pretty much this entire position group coming back intact. So that's two on the defensive line, two at linebacker, and three in the secondary. So seven defensive starters back, plus the seven we mentioned on the offense is 14 returning starters overall. And again, I just really highlight all of the backups we talked about that will likely be stepping up and playing a starting role next year. We saw them all play meaningful snaps this year. So how's that stack up? In 2020, 14 returning starters would have tied for 34th. It's really strong. Above average returning production, I would say a sign of a healthy program with good balance across class years. Some guys stay for fifth years. Some guys leave early for the draft. But with extra COVID eligibility in 2021, 14 returning starters would have actually been closer to 100, what would have been 103rd in the country, so near the bottom. That just shows how big of an impact that extra year of eligibility has had on roster management. But with ND, at 14 restoring, returning starters, even if that is bottom half, two things we need to highlight. That's more returning production than we had coming into this season, and we were a top 10 team. And perhaps most importantly, the likely new starters, which we've alluded to this already, Buckner, Tyree, Diggs, Styles, Colsey, Blake Fisher, Maris Leifau, Brandon Joseph, and the rotation guys in the D-line, 
they all have had a ton of snaps and experience this year. And I would say quite a few of them also have a case for, for some pretty big upside. Um, so I think you're not going to see a lot of guys starting who haven't already been getting reps in big games and big moments. We're really bringing back a healthy balance with strong recruiting coming up from uh, from behind these guys as well as a bunch of the rotational guys coming back, especially on the defensive line. So then in addition to returning starters, 14 with a bunch of depth behind them where we feel really great. We're also going to look at some returning production metrics. The metric primarily looked at is is on offense with skills, position, talent at passing, rushing, and, and receiving. Although I really wish someone would go and take snap counts and look at O-line and, and defense. Maybe that's something we can do in the offseason if, if we hire an intern, Mike. But this year, Notre Dame coming into the year only returned 36% of our production as measured by predicted points added. That was after graduating Ian Book, along with leading receivers Javon McKinley and Ben Skoranek. So that returning production metric was 118th in the country out of 127 teams. So really almost near the bottom. Now, interestingly, Alabama was even worse than that. Uh, They ranked 125th in the country in returning metric, and both Alabama and Notre Dame did just fine this year. So again, nuance matters. This is meant as a predictor of how a team will do relative to where they are this year, but you need a lot of context going into that. And so the metric we're looking at predicted points added according to collegefootballdata.com. Really, it's it's a reference. It's a metric we've referenced a lot this year. Predicted points added on a per play basis by individual players. In total, Notre Dame's skill position players this year had 504 predicted points added. So we're talking about what is the number of, or what is the percentage of that 504 points of offense that was predicted by the plays we did this year what portion of that is coming back? Of these 504 points, the three biggest contributors were, were Jack Gone at 162 points, Kevin Austin at 74, and then Kyron Williams at 60 points. So, yes, Michael Mayer is coming back, but we are losing QB1, our uh, running back one, and our wide receiver one. So that's, that's about 59% of the production that uh, will be lost to graduation or the NFL draft. Um, so that leaves uh, returning production of about 35 to 40%, pretty much right in line with that last season where we ranked near the bottom of college football in returning production at the skill positions. So to wrap this up, Andy will rank near the bottom of returning production. At the QB position, we do have Buckner, who brings a super high ceiling and some experience, but he will be a first-time starter, unlike uh, bringing in Jack Cohn, who had established a certain level of play already. He had already been to a Rose Bowl. He had already played at a high level. He was, he was a veteran starter. With most of the line coming back, though, and a lot of the pieces in the passing game and running game, I think we should feel good that Tommy Reese will get this offense humming. And our way-too-early outlook is that the offense will be about the same as this year, but the big X factor really all falls on Buckner. If he makes a big jump, if he's that true—we true, true we know that he's a dual threat, but if he's someone who is becomes as effective at throwing the ball as he is at running the ball— I think that significantly raises the ceiling and we could be talking about an offense that's getting closer to that elite level. Um, again, we probably didn't talk about Buckner quite enough here, but I do think that that, that point is really, uh, the point on him is, is really important. The good thing is that he, he does have a favorable situation. He has a lot of returning production. The offensive line is experienced. He has uh, running backs who have played coming back, um, even if Kyron Williams has gone on. Um, we do have some talented receivers who are back. We got Michael Mayer. So I do think that he's he's walking into a good situation that should put him in the best position possible to succeed. Um, now, moving on to the defense, we lose Hamilton. Yes, 
that's that's a big hit. We did get Brandon Joseph, so that's big. Uh, however, Foskey, he's another big piece to the puzzle. That's an impact defensive end. Not a lot of teams have that. Someone like that who can who can really disrupt game plans, just disrupt uh, just disrupt the offense's uh, flow and play. I think that, that that gives us a lot of upside. And there's also a lot of uh, depth returning that should set up Freeman to produce another top 20 defense. I don't know if there's enough coming back, especially high-end elite guys outside of maybe someone like Foskey, that make me think that this is a top 10 defense. Um, I mean, if I'm thinking about who on who on the defense side of the ball can really be an All-American here. Again, Foskey, I think he's a clear candidate. We've already mentioned that. Uh, but that might be it. There's no uh, Jeremiah Wusakaramoa, Kyle Hamilton, or Jalen Smith in that locker room. Um, you know, maybe Joseph. Maybe Joseph can get back to the level of play that he had uh, two seasons ago. There's some unknowns like Leofau. If he's healthy and if he's looking like he did before he got hurt last year, he is maybe one of those guys who could step up. But outside of that, I don't think there's a clear impact player here um, other than Foskey, who who I, I think can come in here and, and really move the needle and make the case for a top 10 defense. I I completely agree. I think if Notre Dame football fans are watching offseason news about college football, they're going to see Notre Dame ranking towards the bottom in returning starters, returning metrics, and, and who we've lost and who's moving on. And um, that will maybe lead you to believe that this team will take a step back. I think what we really want to emphasize from what we're looking at is, yes, those returning production metrics might be behind the rest of college football, but we are bringing back a ton of pieces. We're maybe missing an X factor. Buckner could be that X factor on defense. I don't know if we've got that defensive player of the year type guy. I I completely agree, Mike, but there's enough pieces coming back where this should very solidly be a top 20 offense and a top 20 defense. And if you do those two things, if you have that much balance, you're going to be a top 10 football team. And so from a talent perspective, and we'll get to the schedule in a second, but from a talent perspective, I think we both believe this will be another top 10 type football team for Notre Dame. Definitely. And I think the, the next question now is how will that talent level translate into wins and losses, which brings us to the schedule. In the offseason, we're going to break down these teams and get more granular on this. But for right now, we're going to look at this year's SP Plus and assume that these teams will be roughly at the same level next year. Some will get better, of course. Clemson was really young this year. They have talent. I'd expect them to improve. USC has lost a lot of pieces to transfers and a thin recruiting class this year. It's improved a bit. But I wouldn't be surprised if year one for Lincoln Riley is a struggle unless he just really hits it. Even if he even if he hits a grand slam in the transfer portal, I just don't think that there's any way he can make up for all the depth issues that they have. There's Caleb Williams is apparently visiting USC, and there's a receiver who could who's go, probably going to go wherever he goes. If he gets if they get those two guys, maybe that raises their outlook a bit. But I think for the team as a whole, they're probably uh, they're going to struggle a bit. Uh, but anyways, let's assume that next year's schedule is is, is roughly the same as uh this as those teams are this year. And so we're going to put the games that we have into four buckets. The first one is. Are ones that ND is going to be a heavy, heavy favorite. Um, the second are games where we expect ND to be solid favorites with some sort of specific advantage that should make a win very likely. Basically, there is a matchup that we can just exploit over and over again. And then three sneaky games where we should be favored. They're games that we should win. They're games that Brian Kelly, uh, during his tenure would, would pretty much always win. Um, mostly in the, in the last like five years, but, uh, there is some cause for positive. If we don't show up, we could definitely lose. And then four, the marquee matchups where ND is going to be in a dogfight, uh, if not underdogs. Uh, so, Brett, you want to start with the heavy favorites? Yeah, so starting with the heavy favorites, we put in this bucket Navy, Stanford, UNLV, Syracuse, and Cal. SP Plus implies that if those teams played Notre Dame today, 
Notre Dame would be about a four touchdown favorite against Navy, Stanford, and UNLV, and about a two to three touchdown favorite against Syracuse and Cal. So that's five wins solidly in the bag from an odds perspective against those teams on the schedule. The next bucket where we expect ND will will be solid favorites, plus uh, a re- basically because of a, a, some sort of strategic advantage or some big mismatch that we have that should give us a, a pretty big advantage. So the teams that fall into this bucket, UNC, uh, USC, and Marshall. UNC, they're graduating Sam Howell, who uh, was a, a very good QB over his career, an elite QB, elite college QB uh, throughout his career. Um, they have had a lot of great recruiting and, and it is a talented roster, but I do think losing a QB like that is going to be a transition year for UNC with, uh, with a new starting QB. Um, and that game is also early in the season in September. So whoever that new QB is, they're not going to have a ton of reps to really get going. And then USC, we talked about this a little bit, uh, before Lincoln Riley has a lot of butts, but as I already mentioned, they, they, they have a lot of issues with transfers and recruiting recently. There are only eight commitments in this recruiting cycle. Um, the top three weapons, uh, Slovis, London and Ingram are all off to the NFL or transfer. They do have Dart. Uh, he looks good at times, but overall not a big sample size to know if he's going to be a good QB or not. Um, and so I think, uh, I do think it's unlikely as much buzz as they have that they put it all together, um, in year one. If they do, um, then I think that'll get me a little concerned for the next five to 10 years. I might be starting to have some nightmares about the, the Pete Carroll years. Uh, but anyways, and then, and then the last team is, is Marshall, uh, which might surprise some people. This team was sneaky good in the Mac. They finished second in the division, and they lost four games by six points or, or less. So a competitive team. Um, unfortunately for the Thundering Herd, their true freshman QB, who absolutely crushed it in his first year and was set for a big breakout year, he's, he's transferring to Virginia Tech. So uh, we do expect them to take a big step backwards next year, but they are still a competitive team. And I don't think we need to remind Notre Dame fans that, that, Mac, or that teams from the MAC can give us uh, trouble at times. So that's eight games where we feel really good for Notre Dame's chances. The next bucket are games where Notre Dame will likely be favored, but there's some cause for pause. And and the two games we put in this bucket are BYU and Boston College. BYU finished 42nd in the SP Plus ratings this year, so not super elite from an efficiency perspective, but a very solid above-average team. And they now have back-to-back 10-win seasons and finished in the top 20 in the polls this year. So a team that, you know, even if the efficiency metrics aren't there, they know how to go out and win games, and they've been doing it for a while. They're going to be bringing back an elite quarterback in Jaron Hall. He had a pro football focus grade of 89, um, very much getting NFL looks already as as a freshman. And then one of the best running backs in the country, Tyler Algier. So this will be an explosive offense, likely a top 25 team. We very much expect this to be a tougher than expected matchup. And then Boston College, they finished a disappointing 6-6 six and six in the ACC this year. But starting quarterback, Phil Jerkovic, which most Notre Dame fans know him well as he transferred from Notre Dame to Boston College. He missed most of the season with an injury, and when he was out, this was just a much different BC program. So again, he's likely going to get some preseason ACC Player of the Year considerations. If he stays healthy, we would expect this Boston College team to feature a productive quarterback and really take a step forward towards 8, 9, 10 wins. And you know, again, on talent alone, Notre Dame should beat Boston College. But, you know, Phil Jerkovich is going to want that game a lot. You know, his team's going to want it a lot and could be a tricky matchup for ND. Then finally, the two headline matchups. On the road at Ohio State to open the season and Clemson at home on November 5th, which hopefully is uh, as cold as possible. Ohio State has the second best SP plus efficiency rating in college football this year. Um, and their QB, CJ Stroud, will be back coming off of a Rose Bowl win. 
this will be a definitely be a preseason top three team with the pieces they have coming back. Uh, if Notre Dame and Ohio State played today, Notre Dame would be a 10-point underdog on a neutral field. So I think it's likely 13 or 14 points uh, underdog for, for Notre Dame and Columbus, which would imply that Notre Dame only has a 20 to 30% chance of beating Ohio State. And I think another key point here is that Ohio State has exceptional receivers. Um, I think Joseph getting him in the transfer portal at the safety position, that helps a bit. But I think this matchup with our corners is going to be very difficult. I wouldn't be surprised if, if we're regularly getting burned by Ohio State's receivers. Um, and then Clemson, despite three losses, their S&P Plus efficiency rating was, was nearly identical to, to Notre Dame, which would imply that the game would be a toss-up. We have it at home, so that would maybe imply that we would be slightly favored. They do return their starting QB and running back, uh, who are really young this year. Dabo, he also needs to replace both coordinators who took head coaching jobs. So some turnover on the staff, which they actually uh, haven't really had much of throughout much of Dabo's tenure. So it's a bit of an unknown. Are they going to be able to keep everything rolling? Um, they took a bit of a step th- back this year with this extra turnover. Do they continue to slide? I don't know. That's It's a big question mark. But generally, they have a lot of talent. They have some young pieces who I, who I, I would expect to kind of take some some uh, steps up. They were still a top 20 team this year in the polls and top 10 in efficiency metric. In efficiency metrics, so I, I think you got to put this at least as a, a top, uh, put this as a 50-50 uh, toss-up. So, Brett, what's your uh, way-too-early prediction for next year's record? I really wanted to say 11 wins, but I, I just can't. I think Ohio State is for sure a loss on the schedule, and I know we can beat Clemson, but as you mentioned, that's definitely not a lock. That That's a toss-up. And so I'm just worried with a rookie quarterback and a rookie head coach, that whether it's Clemson or just another game where, where we drop one that we probably shouldn't, um, that leads me to saying this team is ten and two, and I think nine and three is more likely than eleven and one or twelve and zero, oh, where it's a loss to Ohio State and Clemson, plus drop another game where we shouldn't. Maybe it's Lincoln Riley figures things out by the end of the season with USC in in the season finale, or BYU really takes a step forward and has an elite offense. So I've got Notre Dame at ten and two. Um, that's my prediction right now, but I got a hunch by August as, as we do more homework on these teams, I might be pulling that back to, to nine and three. Um, certainly wouldn't be surprised if the Las Vegas over under for Notre Dame wins is nine or, or maybe even eight. Yeah. I think for Vegas, I wouldn't be surprised if it's at nine wins. Um, I think I'm thinking about this the same way you are, Brett, Ohio state. That's a tough matchup just from a pure talent standpoint. They're one of those rosters where, Unless unless they're playing Bama or Georgia or one of those teams, they just have a clear talent uh, advantage over whoever their opponent is. And that's definitely the case for us. We have a talented roster, but it's certainly not what Ohio State is. And then on top of that, they have a very talented QB. And as I already mentioned, their wide receivers are really good too. So you have the talent mismatch, and then you also have, I think, just a bad, uh, in terms of like strengths and weaknesses, I think you have a pretty uh, unfavorable matchup from our standpoint where our corners are going to have to try to stop their wide receivers. To me, I would be very surprised if we if we beat Ohio State. If we somehow pull that off, uh, I told you this before the show. I'm putting my <laughs> I'm putting my chips on the odds of us winning a national championship is, is much much higher. I think like the ceiling is, is very high there. You never know. Ohio State has shown some weaknesses on the defensive side of the ball. They certainly did in the Rose Bowl. Um, if Buckner is a revelation and he takes that big step, we mentioned he's the big X factor. Maybe that can keep us in this. Uh, but I think that's a clear loss. And then I'm not saying we're going to lose to Clemson. I think there's a good chance we could beat Clemson, but I think between the Clemson game and some of these other tougher matchups, I think we probably at least, we probably drop one of those. And I think that gets us to 10 and two. Um, obviously nine wins, that's not something that would be crazy, but I think, 
Um, if I gun to my head, I think t- 10 wins sounds about right. So that's our way too early 2022 season preview. And with that, we're very excited. We've now got the return of the Four Horsemen segment. And number three is the competitive spirit. It's creating a winner's mindset. I believe that leaders are born, but winners are created. And you're created through intentional actions. To close out our last episode of the first season of the Guyers Talk podcast, we of course thought it would be fitting to go through our favorite moments of the season, and we'll do it in Four Horsemen style where we will tick down our top four moments of the 2021 football season. I'll quickly roll off some honorable mentions. I I thought they deserved uh, at at least a mention, and then Mike will, will dive into the four that we picked as our top moments this year. The honorable mentions are Diggs, hurtling the UVA defenders he ran down the sidelines. Myron Tungvaloamosa's senior day scoop and score touchdown for the defensive tackle. Uh, Mike Mayer's touchdown to beat Toledo after Jack Cohn dislocated his finger, popped it back in, and and finds Mayer to, to come back against Toledo. So those were our runner-ups. And with that, Mike, you want to kick off the, the top four? Definitely. So first on the list of the four horsemen was the Kevin Austin two-point conversion, which really just uh, was was a nice ending to our comeback against Virginia Tech, a game where things were looking pretty bleak. At that point in the game, well, earlier in the game, really our season felt like it was on the line. It felt like, oh, wow, things are things are getting out of hand. Our hopes for potentially uh, turning it around and, and maybe having a nice ending to the year, maybe getting to a New Year's Six Bowl game, really seemed like it was about to fall away against Virginia Tech. But then we, we turned it around, and then uh, the Kevin Austin – uh, two point conversion in dramatic fashion, um, really helped us, uh, helped us pull it off. So I think, I think if you look at kind of, uh, watershed moments in the season, I think that that's certainly one that immediately captures your attention. Prior to that Austin two point conversion, I have an infamous text in our group thread, Mike, where I said, the way this team looks, it's more likely we'll be seven and five than 10 and two. And then <laughs> Cohen comes back in and we have the fourth quarter come back and we finish 11 and one and the rest is history. But, uh, that Austin two point conversion really felt like it wasn't just critical to that game, but critical to the season. Next on the list, Kyle Hamilton's cross field interception against Florida State, a night when he had two interceptions, really played a strong game, came out in the season and, and pretty much almost in one game locked up his status as an all American safety for Notre Dame. And I just remember he started on the left hash of that, saw the quarterback turn his eyes to the right sideline and just started sprinting and covered about 40 yards to go from the left hash all the way to the right sideline and intercepted the pass with a toe dragging pick Um, really would have been an elite reception for an NFL wide receiver, let alone a college safety. And just the ground he covered in that play demonstrating just truly an elite special talented player was so great to get to see him play six games this year. It was a shame uh, we didn't get to see him play more, but certainly that interception against Florida State stands out in my mind as arguably the the best defensive play we, we had all season. It's one of those highlights that doesn't come along very often. The one that the one prior to Hamilton, and this is a few years back, that kind of reminds me of it was uh, Quentin Nelson's block against Georgia where he just absolutely just like kind of he saw that where he was immediately supposed to go with the play there wasn't anything that he could do there so then he slides over and just completely punishes 
this pass rusher for Georgia. And they, they still show that clip nowadays. It's like one of those things, but if Quentin Nelson does something spectacular in the NFL, which he's had many moments of that, they'll be like, wow, this guy's been doing it for a long time. Look at this clip of Quentin Nelson versus Georgia. I suspect with Kyle Hamilton, this is one of those clips where they will be showing it again for years to come. For, for sure at the NFL draft in April, that interception will be shown like 17 times by uh, Todd McShay and Mel Kuyper. It's just one of those clips. It's like, okay, so this guy's good. How good is he? Let me show you a clip. And then you're like, oh, wow. Okay. Yep. Not many people can do that. Um, but anyways, uh, we could, I could talk about Kyle Hamilton and Kyle Hamilton highlights all day. Uh, moving on to our next one. Uh, so this is against Wisconsin. Pretty close game for much of the game. Uh, but then Ty, uh, Chris Tyree's kick return really just gave some like juice to the game and really injected an energy level that the team kind of carried through and led to a blowout, frankly. So I'm going to mention that. And then I'm also going to mention really that entire fourth quarter where there were a bunch of turnovers. We're scoring a bunch of defensive touchdowns. I was at the game with Brett and our, and my friend Jim and, and a bunch of other friends too. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, we were just like jumping up and down. We were going crazy. And yeah, actually, let's see. Yeah, Brett's wife, Ann, was, was sitting there right with us. And we were, I think we were like pushing her up for, for like touchdowns at, at, at times. Yeah, it was just, we were going like bananas that whole time. It was, it was one of the more, uh, fun game experiences, uh, that I've had. Absolutely. And then to top off our favorite moment of the season, it was the Kyron Williams stiff arm against the University of North Carolina where he then bounced outside from what looked like might be a three-yard loss. He turns it into a 91-yard touchdown run, leaving virtually the entire UNC defense in his dust. And just that stiff arm, that sheer will to beat the other guy across from you, and then to take it to the house after that, really just a testament to the leadership, the type of runner that Kyron Williams is. Um, Again, like Kyle Hamilton, there's dozens and dozens of plays I could talk about Kyron Williams and, and what he meant to this team, but that stiff arm against UNC just stood out as um, really arguably the best offensive play we, we had all year and, and tops our list. One of the best runs I've seen. I, I think that is the best run I think I've, I've seen from a Notre Dame running back since, since I've been a fan. There there have been memorable ones from like Josh Adams, but that was one of those, uh, I'm not going to say it was on the level of, of, uh, beast mode, but it was one of those ones where he really took, made something out of nothing. And it, it started with that stiff arm. Um, just one of those moments. It, it where, was a run that I don't even think a video game would let you pull off. And then Kyron Williams did it in real life. Yeah. I felt like it was going to be an, uns- it looked like a clear, like clearly it was going to be an unsuccessful play. And then, yeah, I don't know. And that's, I mean, really that's what Kyron Williams would do. It would just be, plays where we look dead to rights then he he does find some crazy gaps stiff arms a guy has incredible balance like wiggles through tackles and the next thing you know he scores so yeah it's he was a lot of fun to watch gonna miss having him on the team gonna root for him in the nfl uh would be surprised if he if he does not find success in, in the nfl but i think that moment i think that touchdown run encapsulates uh what we had in kyron williams um the most so with that that's a wrap for our 2022 season recap the first season of the Guyers Talk podcast is officially in the books. Stay tuned, like us, follow, subscribe on Twitter, uh, well, on Twitter as well as Spotify and Apple, and and wherever you get your podcast. We will be posting content throughout the off season, so stay tuned for that. And until we talk again, Guyers beat Buckeyes. Guyers beat Buckeyes.